It's good to be back. It's been a few weeks. Danny was preaching uh, and did a great job, our youth intern. Um, the last two weeks took us through Jonah. Um, and Chris wrapped up our This Is Our God series before that. So Larry and I had a nice little break. Um, now we're back. And I'm excited, really excited about this series we're going to walk into together. We're going to look through the, the epistle of 1 John. Um, and the series is called Walking in the Light. Um, and and it's, this is an intense letter um, and, and some hard words, but also some life-changing, joy-inducing words that I'm excited for us to put ourselves under the authority of and claim as, as brothers and sisters. Um, so let's jump into it. Uh, many of you have seen paintings like this. This is The Last Supper. Da Vinci uh, had one very similar to this. And as I see these paintings, um, I often think of, of very similar things. You know, first of all, I don't know what's going on, but they need to get outside more. Like, their serious lack of vitamin D. Is it, is it D? It's D. Yeah. I need some sun. The other thing I see is, is you know, you see, here's John. Um, I never get to use my laser pointer. Um, John's right here. This guy, uh, he's the green one. The guy in the green shirt, he's kind of leaning on Jesus. Kind of looks kind of like he's sick or something, but... Um, Oftentimes, when we think of the Apostle John, uh, when I think of Peter, I think of a man's man, right? Like, there's a disciple. He's bold, he's brash. Yeah, he crosses the line a little bit, but he's a manly man. You think of John, and I'm growing up with this kind of idea of John as sort of weak, kind of slightly effeminate. He was kind of like Jesus' lapdog. He was, he was the one that was always nuzzled up to Jesus, like in this picture, known as the Apostle of Love, right? He just wants everybody to get along. Right? And, and so John kind of has this kind of tender image, and he was even known as the apostle whom Jesus loved. That's how he identified himself in the gospel. But when you read through the gospels, you get a very different John. It's, it's not this soft John that, that I grew up thinking of. John is, he's pretty high strung. John is volatile. He's, he's pretty ambitious, pretty aggressive, pretty demanding, um, pretty emotional. And, and you go through, in fact, John and James, remember there's the three inner disciples, Peter, John, and James. John and James were brothers, and they were known as the sons of thunder, okay? Not exactly like a precious moments scene that you might think in your mind. It's more like a wrestling team or something. And, and so John and James, like, they're bringing the noise, man. Like, there's this time in, in Jesus, you know, remember the Samaritans? Everyone just hates on the Samaritans, right? We kind of make fun of them. Like, they're kind of like Nikiski, right? We just kind of like, you're out there. Sorry if you're in from Nikiski. I'm sorry that you're in. You know. Anyway, um, so, so they're kind of on the outcast, and, and on the outside, and James comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, can you please call down fire from heaven and wipe out Samaria? And John's over his shoulder going, yeah, Jesus, burn them. Like, it's insane. Like, and, and, and as you go through, John and James, they, remember their time when their mom drags them by their ears to Jesus, and he says, she says, I want my boys sitting at your left and right hand when you're ruling and reigning someday. And there's this sort of pushing their way to the front of the line. In Mark 9, they're arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom, like which one's the best disciple, who's going to be at the top of the heap at the, at the end of it all. And then the very next sentence, John sees someone casting out a demon in the name of Jesus, Jesus as prescribed and he says Jesus tell that guy to stop it that's only for us in our group he can't do it and Jesus rebukes him 
as an elitist who won't allow other people to do the work of God. So here's this elitist, ambitious, black and white, in-your-face, over-the-top, intense man, this brash firecracker. And you say, why in the world would God use someone like John? Because God knew that that energy aimed in the right direction and tempered with the love and grace of God could set the world on fire. And it did. And John did amazing things for the kingdom. John, Jesus saw John's unwavering commitment to the truth, but he knew that he needed to replace his selfish ambition with selfless love. And we see that happen, and he becomes known as the apostle of love. And John's writing, I love this, this letter is, is, is black and white. John is bold, he is authoritative, he is black and white, he is dogmatic, he is absolute. We're going to see him paint pictures of light and dark and right and wrong and holiness and unholiness and walking with God and walking in sin. And he doesn't see a middle road, which I think is perfect for today's world. We live in this overly tolerant world where it's just kind of you come and just believe whatever you want to believe man it's all good we have this compromising truth that's being taught in a lot of the church today and john's message is a perfect remedy for that and as i was thinking about john's path from from harshness to grace i thought about my my own journey and maybe it makes you think of, of yours i remember when i was in bible school i have a term for myself and I'll even soften it a little bit for Sunday morning, I called myself a Bible school jerk, um, where I, I went through two years, this is, this is me at Bible school, this is my graduation speech, <laughs> never one for the spotlight, um, and in this era, I, um, man, I got a lot of teaching, like I got two years of solid Bible education, but what happened is I have all this information, and what do we know about knowledge? Knowledge puffs up, okay? Love builds up, and the Holy Spirit hadn't had time to grow me in the truths that I had been learning. And so when I came back home from Bible school, man, I saw people, and I dealt with people in harsh terms, well, that person doesn't even know Jesus. That church is doing it wrong. They're messed up. Everybody in this gym should be out in the mission field. You're all living in sin. And I just saw this, like, really kind of, this the way I viewed people as statistics instead of souls. And so, yes, I had all this. I had a personality. I had gifts. I had talents. I had knowledge. But I hadn't been aimed in the right direction. And God, over the years, and I'm still very much on this path where he's moving me down the road, tempering me with his grace and love and applying that truth in my life. And I'm so glad that when God looked at John and he looked at me, he didn't just discard us and say, well, that person's not going to work. But he saw our potential from how he created us, added with his love and grace and what it could do for his kingdom. And that's what God's in the business of doing. That's what redemption is all about. It's taking what's broken and it's healing it. It's taking what's wrong and making it right. And his kingdom is a kingdom of ragamuffins. 
And that's what we're here. That's what we're doing. And I don't know where you're at on that journey and if, if that experience has been yours, but God takes us and he refines us through the fire. He chips away the flaws. He makes us like his son and he uses us for his glory and his purpose. Praise God. So John, this, this man who is this hot-tempered man who's been aimed in the right direction is the one who wrote this book. Now, we see in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, nowhere does he say, hey, this is John. Hey, everybody. He never, he never identifies himself as John. So how do we know that that's who wrote it? Of course, we call it 1st John, but how do we get that name? Well, there's a couple things. Um, the, the early church testimony from the people who knew John firsthand uh, down through history, there's never really been a lot of debate that they knew that this was John. So we haven't had a lot of controversy surrounding that. Also, it's interesting, at this point, John was the only living apostle. All the other apostles were martyred. John's the only apostle that wasn't martyred. He was, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He was boiled alive, um, but he survived it. Um, but here he is at the end of his life. John's an old man as he's writing this. John's the only living apostle. So he's the only one alive that could write with the kind of authority that we see this, apostle, this uh, epistle being written as. And at the very beginning of the epistle, he claims that he has seen and heard Jesus firsthand. And that really narrows it down to who that could be. We also see that he consistently omits his name in his other writings. If you look in the Gospel of John, not only does he never name himself as author, he never names himself as a character. He calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loves. So we find that to be consistent with his other writings. We also see it's very similar language to the other, his other, remember John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote Revelation. And we see the language, his sentence structure, his use of key words like believe and love and know over and over again to be consistent with his other writings. And then finally, um, we see, he, see him dealing with the heresy called Gnosticism, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, it's very consistent. It's a, it's a heresy that he combats in his other writings as well, which were written at this time. Sorry, a little dry. We'll get through it. So here's John. He's an old man at the end of his life. I picture a son of thunder to look like this when he's old, right? He's going down swinging, right? He's not going to be messed with. And it's interesting, this, this man who's lived this incredible life. I mean, imagine literally having walked with Jesus, Imagine seeing all the things that John has seen, doing all the things that John has done. And now, at the end of this life, he sits down and writes a letter. And it's interesting, St. Uh, Jerome, one of the early church fathers, he said this, he, this story about John. He was so old, but still teaching the truth, that he had to be carried into their meeting places. And as John was carried in, and they'd sit him down, he had one message one very simple but very world-changing message, and it was this. Little children love one another. Little children, a term of endearment that he uses, and we'll see him use it in this epistle. He said, little children love one another. And every time they carried him in and he sat down, he said, little children love one another. And finally, the, the church kind of got tired of this. They're like, John, again, over and over again, you, you brought in and, and you see the same thing. Like, let's move on. Like, now what? And I love John's response. He says, why do I say this every time? Because it is the Lord's command. And if that is all you do, it is enough. He's paraphrasing the Beatles, right? All you need is love. 
says, that's it. And, and, and more importantly, he's paraphrasing Jesus, who said, when, when he was asked, Jesus, what do we need to do? Like, what's the most important command? What was his response? He said, love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being and love other people just as much as you love yourself. If you've done this, you've satisfied everything that God wants you to do. And that's essentially what John is saying here. If you love, you are obeying God and everything else falls in place. So John, the apostle of love. So this is my message, and I'm going to repeat it until my dying day. And that's exactly what he did. So John writes this letter. Well, who do you write it to? Um, there's no specific church mentioned in the letter. And in fact, you'll see there is no intro. There's no closing. You know, like Romans, where Paul writes like for an entire chapter just on, you know, this introduction to the Rome, and this is me, and this is you. And he, he wraps it up by saying hi to this person and that person. That's not John's personality. John just says, let's get in and let's get out, right? Here's the information. There you go. We're on our way. John doesn't provide an intro or closing. So we don't know that, and there's not a specific person or people he's writing it to. But what we do know is that in the context of the letter, he's writing to believers. And that's going to be very important as we study this letter to know the context is to believers. He's addressing those who, who know God and walk with him. Now, this is probably a circulated letter. They didn't have email at the time. They couldn't just blast this out and forward it. He couldn't just tweet out a link and and have everybody able to read it right away. This was a painstaking task to write the letter, to send the letter out. And so these letters were very prized possessions. And oftentimes, they weren't just set to one church or one group. They would be passed around a certain region. And with John, most likely, he was pastoring some churches in Ephesus at this time, the latter part of his life. And so it's very likely that this is the area where he was, um, where he was sending these letters. In fact, some of the earliest um, writers say that John, um, these, these letters were first seen being passed around the Roman province of Asia. And you see where Turkey is, that peninsula up there, modern-day Turkey. That's what they called um, the Roman province of Asia at that point. Asia has expanded a little bit since. Um, but there's Ephesus right there on the coast. And it's most likely that he sent this letter out and it was circulated amongst these people. So what does John, at the end of this incredible life that he lives, what does he have to say to this group of people? What is his message? What is the the urgent need that they have then and that I believe we still have for today? Well, the theme that John sets before us is very simple. John is, you're going to see, he doesn't mince words. He's going to tell you exactly why he's writing and tell you what's up. 1 John 3, right out of the gates, 1-3, he says this, We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, this first-person account of Jesus, so that you, and here's why, here's why I'm writing this letter, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The reason that John, on his last breaths, wanted to send this letter out was that so people could have fellowship with him, but more importantly, because that fellowship was with God. He says, there's nothing more important in your life than this fellowship. Now that's kind of a Christian buzzword, isn't it? Fellowship. Like, what are we talking about? This word in the Greek, it's koinonia. You may have heard it before. It means to share in common. So to have koinonia with somebody is to share something in common with them. Now, the, the more you have in common and the more important things that you have in common, the deeper the intimacy goes. I love sports. 
And if I meet someone else that loves sports, we have an instant connection. A couple weeks ago at a friend's wedding, I met a guy, never seen him before in my life. He loves the NBA. I love the NBA. We talked for over an hour on off-season free agent trades, and it was stimulating. <laughs> There's three people in this room that could probably say that. And I'm best friends with both of them. Um, but... <laughs> That, that, that is just an instant connection, but that can only go so deep, right? Free agency talks can, that only gets so much past the surface of our, of our, of who we are. We as believers, we share the most intimate, meaningful spaces in common with one another because we share the same life source. We share Jesus, the same hope, the same love, the same faith, the same joy. But, but this fellowship, this doesn't happen overnight. Fellowship does not mean a potluck after church, as amazing as potlucks are. This isn't just, you know, Alan's really cool bread and coffee before the service. Oh, we had nice fellowship today. Fellowship is sharing those deep things in common as we live life together. It's moving forward in living relationship with each other on a daily basis and with our God on a daily basis. That's how you get to the point of intimacy. And this is what John is calling these believers to, and that's why the the title of our sermon series is Walking in the Light. Light is one of John's favorite metaphors, um, and and he's going to use this as an analogy for walking with God. To walk with God is to walk in the light as opposed to walking in darkness. John is a man who firsthand saw, witnessed Jesus doing miracles. One of the very few people on earth who can say they were there for the transfiguration. One of the people, when Jesus is writhing in agony at the cross, he looks down and he says, John, take care of my mother. And when he raises from the dead... John beats Peter in a foot race to the tomb and is one of the first people to witness his resurrection. If there's anybody who knows intimate fellowship with Jesus and the importance of walking with him, it's John. And so we would, we would, be, we would do well to hear his words and to understand what it is to walk with God. Now, there is no great, neat outline to John. Like, you see Romans, it's just like, it was, it's a preacher's delight. It's just set up exactly like you would want it. John is sort of this spiral that kind of goes around and around these same themes, but they are life-changing, joy-giving themes. Three purposes that John MacArthur pointed out to this study, and we're going to see, we're going to circle around these um, over the next few months. The first purpose that John says, again, typical black and white John fashion, he says that I wrote this letter to you, number one is joy. He says in verse four of chapter one, if we are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. John says the reason I'm writing this to you is to make our joy complete and that you would know the joy that we have. John wrote this in a very dangerous time. Not in the same way that when we we went through Peter earlier this last year, and we saw that there was a lot of persecution. Different different thing going on here. This is false teaching. People are coming in and distorting, perverting the truth of who Christ is. So John says, you must know the truth, but not just know the truth, know the joy that comes from knowing the truth. Do you long this morning for true joy? 
We're not talking about happiness, temporary, you know, highs that we get from entertainment and the things the world offers. We're talking about circumstance transcending, all-fulfilling joy that can only come from knowing God and walking with him. I love one of my favorite definitions of joy is that it's peace dancing. To know the peace of God that we have with him through Jesus that passes all understanding. It says it's that peace getting jiggy with it, right? It's that peace. It's that peace off a leash running around telling the world, do you know this God and the joy that comes from knowing who he is? The first purpose of this study is that our joy would be increased. Are you down for that? Do you want more joy in your life? Understanding the truths in this letter will get you there. Holiness is the second purpose. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, he's very straightforward again. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. John is writing to believers to show them how to walk in a manner in which you are not sinning. To walk in sin is to walk in darkness as opposed to walking in the light, which is, watch, which is walking with God. And John is going to be crystal clear that you cannot walk in darkness and walk in the light with God at the same time. It's one or the other, and he does not offer a middle ground. The third and probably the most important purpose of this study that he offers is assurance. Assurance. Chapter 5. I've written this to you whom believe in the name of the Son of God, and here's why, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. John's third purpose is assurance. The reason that he wrote this letter, he says, I don't want you to live in fear and doubt. And how often is that our experience as believers? That our minds get dominated, get crowded by the fear and doubt that so easily crops up in this life. He says, I want you to know that you are his child and that you're walking with him. I want you to be assured of this. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, he says, assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to the joy of salvation. In other words, there's a couple Christian words here, but we can work through them. There's assurance and, and, and security. Security says you are saved, and, and there's nothing that can change that. Assurance says I know that I'm saved. Now, what Martin says here is that I can be saved and not be sure of it. I can also be sure that I'm saved and not really be saved. But he says true joy only comes into your life when you are his child and you know that you are that's the joy of the lord that becomes our strength and so paul or so paul uh, john writes this letter so that we can know that we are his and so he gives us and this is where we're going to land today he gives us three tests of assurance three three tests kind of litmus tests that we can use in our lives to know that we know him, and to know that we are walking in fellowship with God. Is there anything more urgent for us to understand in this life? The first test that, that, that he offers 
is the doctrinal test. Now, I'm gonna get, we're going to get a little Bible school nerdy here for a second, but it's going somewhere. Stay with me. Um, the first, there's this heresy that started um, right around the time that John's writing this letter. It's in its early forms, and it's called docetism. Basically, doceo is the Greek word that says, I appear or I seem. This is, this is simply what the heresy was. It said that Jesus appeared to be a man, looked like he was a man, but he wasn't. He was just a spirit. That's, that's the crux of this, this heresy. That yeah, Jesus looked, he walked around just like us, but he was not a man. This later was developed into another heresy, one that's a little bit more well-known. It's Gnosticism. The word gnosis in the Greek means to know. And the Gnostics, they said that there's this secret knowledge. There's this inner secret club where we know things that most people don't know. It's the secret knowledge that, that people who just read the Bible, they're on the outs there's this, there's this insider's knowledge that most people don't have. And one of the things, probably the biggest part of their heresy, was that Jesus was born as a man. But it wasn't until he came out of the water when he was baptized and the Spirit descended on him that the Christ Spirit indwelt Jesus. And then it says that this Christ Spirit was in Jesus all the way up until just before he died. And then the Spirit left him. So Jesus was born as just a man, not God, and he died as just a man, not God. Now, now this, both of these heresies stem from the same idea, a general concept called dualism. And dualism says that material is bad, the spiritual is good. Material meaning our bodies, our flesh, our bones, the things here on earth that are created, you can touch, see, smell with your senses, that is all evil. It is inherently evil. All of it is bad. And the spiritual realm, God and his angels, those are inherently good. Okay? So we got this distinction. Material bad, a spiritual good. And, and here, here, here's then the problem. There are many implications of that, but the biggest problem with that is that if Jesus wasn't God when he died, then we're still in our sin. If Jesus was not fully man, he couldn't have died. If Jesus wasn't fully God, he would not have been a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all of mankind. So this one little thing, and this is what's so tricky. These hoodwinkers, they're preaching about Jesus of Nazareth. It looks like a Jesus, it smells like a Jesus, but it's not Jesus. They take him and they just twist him enough... And, and really what they're doing is they're trying to make Jesus more palatable for the Greeks at that time. The Greeks were, had no problem dealing with this kind of abstract spiritual Jesus. But Jesus in the flesh, Jesus the God-man, couldn't deal with that. And how often do you hear today, well, man, we've got to make the gospel more relevant for people. Now, yes, we need to communicate well. And we need to put it in terms that this generation understands. But hear me, brothers and sisters, it is never the gospel that needs to change. It is the hearts and minds of rebellious sinners that need to change. The gospel is the standard, and we need to get in line with it. We must dare not alter it to meet the status quo of our culture. John says this in chapter 4. This is the test. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet, so we're talking about a teacher, someone who's proclaiming something, they acknowledge that Jesus came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. 
If they acknowledge that Jesus Christ came to this earth, took the form of a man, was 100% man, and he was 100% God, then this is a teacher who's teaching truth. If not, get them out of here. No middle ground. The most important question you can ever ask yourself is what do you do with Jesus? This is the crux of all heresy. What we think of Christ, what Christ do we believe in? John Newton, he said it this way in a poem. He said, what you think of Christ is the test to try both your state and scheme. You cannot rightly be in the rest unless you think rightly of him, I guess to make it rhyme. The crux of all heresy is Jesus. This week I was reading on the website of the Mormon church. And man, when you read through the statement of faith, they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. They're calling him the son of God. They're saying that he died for our sins. And you read website after website of, 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 of other beliefs that look very, very similar to the Jesus of the Gospels. We must be very careful what Christ do you believe in? Is he the Christ of the Bible? Or as Chris preached a few weeks ago, do we fashion God or Christ into a God that is more palatable for us? And ultimately, we are making ourselves God in that situation. So the first test is, do you believe in the true Son of God, Jesus Christ? Second test, I'm going to go a little bit quicker. Moral test. Oops. Um, this idea of dualism that the flesh is all bad. This led the people of John's time to say, well, if the flesh is all bad, then let's just do whatever we want. Like, if I'm completely soaked in mud, it's not going to hurt to play in the mud. If I'm completely sinful, then why not just sin? And this led to some pretty gross lifestyles of the people of this time. Because if the flesh is all bad, then let's just live it up and do whatever we want. Now, you, you add to this, remember, this is the second or third generations of the church at this time. The first generation was on fire, growing like wildfire. We read that in the beginning of Acts. I mean, hundreds if not thousands are being added to the church every day. But as the church gets older, they start to get a little bit more complacent. And add to that, there's no persecution going on at this time for these people. And it's always harder for the church to grow in times of plenty than in times of not. We've seen that in our own country. And so what, what you see, the result of this is like this guy, you see complacency. And just like with this guy, trouble is around the next bend. Does this sound familiar to you? A society of complacency, fat and happy, that says you can just kind of live however you want? We're living in very similar times to the times of John. So John combats this in this epistle. He says, no, 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 no. Chapter 1. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. He says, you're a liar if you claim to live, you claim to walk with God, to know him, and yet you're walking in darkness, you're sinning. We know, chapter 2, that we have come to know him if, conditional clause, we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. I told you John is direct. He says, you can't claim to know God and then disobey him. Doesn't work. Not the truth. And then verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You love the world or you love God. You obey him or you don't know him. 
John is black and white. Now, you might say, well, okay, so John's saying if you're walking in sin, you don't know God. So is that saying that everyone who's ever sinned is not a believer? Well, I'd like to start a line over here of all of you who have never sinned in your life. That's awkward. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't apply to any of us. John is not speaking to perfection here, and you'll see why in chapter 1. This is what he says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, remember, context, talking to believers, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John is not talking about perfection here. He's not talking about once you're saved, you never sin, and if you sin, it shows that you were never saved. And what John is talking about here, he's talking about a real habitual, substantial obedience to God. In other words, you step back out and you look at your life, and over the course of your life, what do you see as your general trend? Are you moving toward Christ-likeness? Are you moving toward obedience to what God has for you and where he's leading you? Or do you see a life marked with nothing but rebellion and waywardness? And he says, if that's all you see, then you don't know him. But if you see that you are, you're, I mean, it's not perfection, but you see that you are walking in the light. We're going to talk about more of what that means next week. You see that as the general trend in your life, then you've passed the test. A.A. Hodges said it this way. You can no more separate justification from sanctification. These are two words, um, kind of big theological words. Justification means the moment when you're saved, declared right. Sanctification is the process of looking like Jesus. And he said, you can't come for justification, not sanctification. You can no more separate justification from sanctification than you can separate the circulation of the blood from the inhalation of the air. Breathing and circulation are two different things, but you cannot have one without the other. They go together and they constitute one life. What Hodges is saying here is breathing and blood flow are different. They're two different things. But if you stop breathing, your blood doesn't flow anymore. And if your blood stops flowing, you're not breathing anymore. You need both of them to live. In the same way, he says, you cannot come to God and say, I want all my sins to be forgiven, past, present, and future, but I want to keep on going living in sin. This is, that's, that's never an offer that's made in Scripture. You, you can't say, I want to be saved by Jesus, but I don't want to look like Jesus. You, you cannot say, I want his salvation, but I don't want his image. That's never offered in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not, discipleship, I've heard it said, is obedience in a long direction. It started with salvation, but as it moves toward Christ-likeness, that is the purpose of our salvation, to know him and to look like him and to glorify God in as such. So the second test is not sinless perfection, but it's a real substantial walk in obedience unto God. To know that you know him and that you're walking with him. And the final test is the social test. John says it pretty cut and dry once again. Verse 8, chapter 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. He says, listen, if you claim to be a believer but you don't love people, you're lying. Now, I, I wish I could preach to you a com more comfortable message this morning and just say, we're all just going to kind of get along, big group hug, you know, whatever, do whatever you want, 
just, you know, have a good life. But that's not truth, and, and I can't say that. John's laying out some pretty black and white truths here. And he says, you listen, you might have the doctrinal test down. You might know the Jesus of the Bible. He says, you might even be walking in consistent light with him. You might be, you know, living above reproach, living a pretty good life. You're not murdering people. You're not stealing. But 1 Corinthians says, man, if I have faith that can move mountains, if I throw myself into the flames for someone else, but I don't have love, I have nothing. This whole life is meaningless if we're not loving people. It shows that the love of God's not in us. It shows that you're not walking with God. That is very black and white. So the third test is, how are you treating the family of God? Are you, are you indicating a, a life of love? You say, well, what does that really mean to love somebody? Look at Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Are you being patient with people? Love is kind. Are you being kind with people? Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Are you holding a grudge? Look at the fruit of the Spirit. It unpacks what love looks like. It's joy. It's, it's kindness, it's faithfulness, it's self-control. And if these things are not evidenced in the course of our lives, then how can there be any assurance that we're actually doing this thing, that we're walking with God, that we know him, that we're his child? So where are you at this morning? You, do you pass the test? And, and please, I, I hope you, if you've been here, you know this is not legalism. We're not saying we do good works in order to earn a salvation there's one thing in this church that I hope is clear. It's the gospel and how we're saved. But John says, you want to know that you're his child? You want to know that you're walking with him? You need to believe the correct Jesus. You need to be walking in the light with God in obedience. You need to be loving your brother and sister. Otherwise, there's no assurance there. You want that in your life? The joy, the joy that the truth offers as we walk in holiness with him? And let's dig into this word and see what 1 John has to tell us as we go through this letter to teach us the most important truth in this world, what it means to walk with our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you that we can know the truth. We thank you that you've given it to us in the, in the written form that we can study thousands of years later after it was written, that you have revealed yourself to us and Father, this morning, we acknowledge that it's, it's, it's very easy, um, it's very easy um, to, to worship a Jesus of our own fashioning. I pray that you would bring us as a church to the place where we, we know the Jesus of the Gospels in all of his complicated form. Jesus says hard things. He calls us to hard things. May we not whittle him down to a Jesus that's more palatable for us or for our culture, but we would know the Jesus of the Bible the real Jesus who came to this earth as a God-man to die for our sins. May we fall on him completely. Father, may we be a church that walks with you in the light, that, that desires fellowship over any other thing, and that in that, in that intimacy with you, that we would know the joy that comes, that only you offer that true joy. Father, may we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, if we do pass these tests if we are walking in the light as you are in the light, and teach us as we walk through this epistle what it means to walk in intimate fellowship with each other and with you and your Son, in whom we pray these things. Amen.